It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to Monday.com. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. The Michael Reed Show podcast. Tune in weekdays from 9 on LMFM. To contact us, email now. Michael at LMFM.ie Friday morning, the 3rd of June. Good morning with much debate and discussion from now till 11am. This is Michael Reed on LMFM. As you know, a political stalemate has resulted in the collapse of Northern Ireland's power-sharing agreement. The sticking point is the Northern Ireland Protocol, which the British government agreed with 27 European countries, including Ireland, an agreement which allowed the UK to leave the European Union amicably, allowing for a UK-EU trade deal. The protocol is intended to be the solution on one hand to where the borders of the European Union meet with those of the UK and on the other hand respect Northern Ireland's place in the United Kingdom without placing a physical divide, a hard border on the island of Ireland. It's six years since Brexit and hard as it is to believe or as fed up with the whole thing as everyone might be, Brexit is far from concluded. Unionists want the protocol ripped up. The British government says it is going to go on a solo run, unilaterally rewriting an agreement it made with the rest of Europe and that's without any consultation with the 27 EU countries it is backtracking on. This week, the Sinn Féin leadership went to Brussels where it met with MEPs and members of the EU Commission to talk about it the protocol and let's speak to Sinn Féin President Mary Lou MacDonald about this now and a very good morning to you and thank you indeed for joining us on the programme this morning. There seems to be unwavering support in Europe for Ireland and the protocol so I take it that whilst your visit may have been worthwhile it was a case of preaching to the converted. Would that be right? Well, good morning, uh, Michael, and you gave a, a very comprehensive background account of the circumstances in which we find ourselves. And yes, um, the support for the protocol, the support for the kind of mitigations and protections that the island of Ireland requires in the wake of Brexit, that remains uh, very, very firm. But there is, of course, a growing concern at the fact that the British government under Boris Johnson is uh, proposing to move unilaterally, to scrap part of the protocol, to break international law, to put a a question mark over the entirety of the withdrawal uh, agreement. There's also, of course, concern and frustration that um, weeks now passed uh, what was a very historic election in the North that we still don't have 
an executive. We don't have government up and uh, running and people are very conscious that all of this is happening at a time when families, when workers, when communities are really, really struggling hard with a cost of living crisis. And I'm sure all of your listeners are experiencing that at first hand. And that's the case in the north. And, you know, it's very frustrating. We now have more than four hundred million pounds sterling that the caretaker finance minister, my colleague Connor Murphy, has. And he cannot distribute that and put that back into people's pockets because there isn't an executive uh, sitting. So it's a wholly unacceptable situation. But to answer your question directly, yes, the support for Ireland is still strong. The support for the Good Friday Agreement remains strong, but there are deep concerns which we share. Um, and we were out to discuss those matters with Marish Shevkovich, the Vice President of the Commission, and we met with uh, leading parliamentarians from across the political spectrum. Okay, so if there is follow-through then from uh, the British side and it unilaterally rewrites part of uh, the agreement or scraps the agreement or whatever it it does without uh, an agreement with the rest of Europe, which seems clear from what you've said, what then? Will there be consequences? Well, that's the big question, and it, and, and it strikes me, Michael, when I, when I hear many within uh, political unionism, and, and let's say specifically the DUP, because bear in mind, it is the DUP and the DUP alone that's stopping the government, the executive being formed. <clears throat> the Ulster Unionist Party share concerns about the protocol, but they, they accept the, the reality that those concerns have to be dealt with elsewhere, and, and they believe, like the rest of us, that we need to get the parties need to get on with forming the executive and with with governing. But yes, of course, if Boris Johnson insists on going ahead in a unilateral fashion, of course there will be consequences. And we met with Boris Johnson what two, two weeks ago. He visited Hillsborough. He was in Ireland. Uh, we met with him. Uh, we told him very very clearly that his proposed course of action was unacceptable. Um, and very, very dangerous, and and that of course there would be consequences mm. uh, for us. Let me ask um, you about what, one what those, of the obvious. Those, okay. Let me let me, let yeah, me sure. just say what the most yeah. obvious consequence yeah. is, because this gets lost in uh, this gets lost sometimes when people are discussing things. I mean, the protocol uh, does many things, but fundamentally it allows the North to have unfettered access to the European single market for goods. Mm. Now, in the absence of a protocol, if you want to ask me what's the first direct consequence, well, obviously then that question of access to that market comes into into question. I I can't imagine that anybody in business north of the border, that anybody who has an interest in job creation and prosperity and working people and their lives and their quality of life could regard that as a good outcome. And in fact, I've heard Jeffrey Donaldson say, on the one hand, that yes, of course, he wants to see access to the European market. Why wouldn't he? I mean, that's a that's an incredible, uh, incredibly mm. big market, a, a valuable market. But at the same time, he doesn't want the protocol. If that's the, the first... That he can't have both. If that's the first and most obvious consequence, uh, I take it that the second... Uh, consequence and most obvious one after that is that if the British government acts in a way that satisfies the DUP and they take up their seats in Stormont, uh, we're going to have a situation where Sinn Féin won't take up their seats. 
Well, no, we're we're not drawing any red lines, and we've we've been absolutely clear that we're not going to get drawn into a cycle and a spiral of negativity. What what society needs at this time is positive, front-footed, and forward-looking leadership. So we're not getting into that space. I am not drawing red lines <clears throat> and saying we what we will not do. I, I'm making it very, very clear. And Michelle O'Neill, as the first minister designate or the first minister elect, has made very, very clear that we want and we need and society needs an executive up and running. Mm. Because people need now, today, this week, this month, next month, they need a government that can actually respond to the huge waiting list in our in the hospitals. The fact that, that people will struggle to keep the light on and put food on, on the table for their families. So nobody has the luxury, Michael, to be up to be frank with you, to say, Well, we're not going to do government. The power sharing government has to work. But but let me also say this any notion that political unionism has that they can simply shred up the protocol and that it's going to go away. I don't believe are founded in reality. And bear in mind, and just to remind mm. your listeners, we've been down this road with the British government before threatening to unilaterally act. Remember the single markets bill that went through uh, the parliamentary process. It, it, never, it, it never concluded. It never found its way into law and Boris Johnson is repeating um, previous behaviours, amplifying them even louder and demonstrating again that he and his government are not good faith negotiators. They're not good. They're not acting in good faith and they're quite prepared to uh, make Ireland, the north of Ireland in particular, a bargaining chip in this kind of Mm. um, confrontation that he seems to wish to maintain with Europe and, and the European project. And I, I suspect, you know, it's, it's in large measure Boris Johnson trying to cover his tracks and distract from the fact that the north of Ireland economically is really well placed, is actually doing quite well. All Ireland trade, as you know, has spiked. The, the integration of the all Ireland economy has been accelerated by Brexit. The protocol has afforded a great opportunity to the North. And it, that's in direct contrast with Britain. Outside of London, the figures and the prospects are not good into the Midlands, up into the North of England. I, Boris Johnson knows this as surely as I do. And so we have the cynical po- politics of distraction. And then, of course, the internal machinations of the Tory party, where uh, there, it seems we're advised that there are potentially some moves on his leadership. That's his priority. Mm, which still leaves people in the north uh, without a, a government. Still exactly. still leaves people in the north concerned about the health service and the cost of living and inflation and all of the bread and butter issues uh, that are important to people going about their daily lives. And you could argue to some degree that uh, the protocol disagreement or the idea of the British ribbing it up or rewriting it or, or whatever they do is an argument between the UK and all of Europe. Europe. And in terms of governing Northern Ireland, uh, maybe it wouldn't be seen as positive by the DUP, but it could be proactive for people who are worried about those issues if the Good Friday Agreement was looked at so that a government could be formed in a different way. At the moment, uh, the first and deputy first minister has to come from the largest nationalist party and the largest unionist party. Could that be changed so that the alliance maybe could put forward a deputy first minister in this instance? 
Well, actually, the First Minister has to come from the largest party. Yes. So mm. uh, had that been, for example, the Alliance Party, they would have nominated the, the First Minister, but that wasn't the case. Look, the, the rules are as they are now. Uh, we fought the election on that basis. And just given the fact that the Good Friday Agreement is already under pressure, it's very clear to me that there are some who are trying to rewrite the rule book in a very, very negative way. I mean, just remember, Michael, that it was last October that the DUP walked away from the north-south arrangements from that strand of the of the agreement. Then they walked away from the executive and now they wish to dispense with the protocol with all that that entails. So I think we, we would need to be very thoughtful um, and quite cautious at any call to, to start opening up the whole uh, scenario again because there mm. are, are those whose dearest wish is to turn back the clock, who have a real problem with sharing power. And um, I think that, in the first instance, is the thing that needs to be named and the thing that that needs to be politically confronted, the ability to share power. For the first time, a unionist deputy first minister serving with a nationalist or Republican first minister, that Mm. is groundbreaking. It's significant, obviously, for people who are nationalists, but it's a significant equality moment for all of society, I believe. And it's really, really important that political unionism crosses that Rubicon because we all have to live together. The rules are the rules. The the problem here isn't the rule book. The problem is that the DUP, who are entitled now to nominate not just the deputy first ministers, but other ministers to the executive mm-hmm. um, are, are are refusing to do so. And, and worse than that, they're being aided and abetted in that regard by Boris Johnson for his own narrow and very, very selfish political reasons. Yeah, but then you have the odd uh, situation where, despite the fact that the positions of first and deputy first minister are of equal importance, the DUP, or certainly some members of the DUP would find it hard to stomach having a DUP uh, Deputy First Minister to a Sinn Féin First Minister, and that may never happen. And because the rules are as they are now, it's possible, isn't it? Uh, I know you said you don't want to be negative, but uh, I think it's very possible, in actual fact, that power sharing has permanently collapsed. Well, look... um Here's here's the actual truth of it. Like because people regularly would 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 ask uh, me or that ask Michelle or would speculate to, as to try and figure out what does political unionism want, what does the DUP want, and if you're to boil it right down, there's a section of political unionism, and what they want is yesterday, what they want is the past, and that's gone. That that is, and and thank God it's gone. To, to be honest with you, um, because where we are now and what we can build into the future is so much stronger and so much more positive than all of the difficulties that we've we, we've come through in in the past. So, the other truth is this: there isn't an option other than living together, working together, governing together, and sharing power. I mean, that's the only. That's where it is. Early or late, that's that's the position that you um, arrive at. And I, I think the most helpful thing that could happen now is 
for Boris Johnson to stop using political unionism, playing games with them for his own ends, and actually to be truthful and to make it clear that he, as British Prime Minister, that it falls to him, to his administration, as you correctly said, to use the established mechanism and to deal with the Commission to smooth out the implementation of the protocol. And let me emphasise, you see, for importers in the North, there are there, there's an issue around paperwork, there's an issue around checks. Now, anybody who thought that there weren't, wasn't going to be greater paperwork and checks in the wake of Brexit, Frank, quite no disrespect, was, was living in cloud cuckoo land. But the Commission, everybody recognises that there are things that we can do that can be done to smooth that out. So as far as Johnson's job description, to get that work done. And I think he needs to be clear with the DUP that that, that, is, that is where that responsibility lies. And also that the past is gone and any instinct to kind of kick back against the fact that we now have, for the first time historically, a woman who is a nationalist, a Republican, who will serve as, as First Minister, that that is where it's at. And that needs to be embraced in a spirit of respect and equality. And I can guarantee this, Michael, that that level of respect and equality will be given by Michelle O'Neill as First Minister if she gets the opportunity to lead mm. the executive in spades. She campaigned, we campaigned for partnership politics and for a First Minister for all. And we will be as good as our word and she will be as good as her word in that regard. I think many would think it's very plausible that there would be a woman who is a member of Sinn Féin leading government north and south of the border on this island in the coming years. But can I conclude by asking you about a border poll? Because if you're telling unionists to forget about singing yesterday once more, if Boris Johnson or the next British Prime Minister isn't going to do something that will result in power sharing being restored. What about tomorrow? Uh, are we talking about a border poll or when are we talking about a border poll? Well, I, I believe we we're talking about a border poll and, and the issue of reunification in any event. I mean, I think this, this, this history now is being written, you know, as, as, as we live and breathe and as, as, as we, we, we go about our business. So in any event, we will face into, I believe, uh, unity referendums north and south within this uh, decade. I believe that's firmly that that is the case. I mean, just bear in mind the Good Friday Agreement will be 25 years old, a quarter of the century next uh, year. We've come a very long way, but we have another leg of the journey to make. And, and the most exciting leg of the journey, actually, because the potential for this island is enormous. And this can be a win-win all around. This isn't about rehashing the past. It's not about winners and losers. It's not about victories or defeats. This is about building a new Ireland. And I, for one, am enormously excited by that prospect. But I recognise that we need now to start the work. And I've, I've advanced this case to Michal Martin. I've advanced this case to Leo Varadkar in his time. Who knows? I might be advancing it to him again if they if they get their way and he comes back in as, as Taoiseach that whoever is in government, that preparatory work needs to needs to start now because there is absolutely no doubt and <clears throat> the recent election in the North was just the latest piece of evidence that politics and life is, is changing and that needs to be um, embraced by, by one and all. So it's exciting times, uh, Michael, and I, I, I for one 
believe that we are missing so many opportunities economically, socially and politically because we are still partitioned. But I believe that we can overcome that. And I look very much forward to um, engaging, particularly those who who are not convinced uh, of the value of this or for whom reunification would not be their first choice because unionism will will, you know, obviously argue for the union. But every voice needs to be heard. And that preparatory work needs to start as a matter of urgency. Mary Lou MacDonald, thank you indeed uh, for joining us on the programme this morning. Much appreciated. That's uh, the Sinn Féin president, Mary Lou MacDonald. Michael Reed on LMFM. Retrofit your home, save uh, the planet, and in uh, the quest to to do all of that, uh, you'll save a fortune on energy bills. Where can you go wrong? Well, you may not be able to afford it. Let's speak to Claire O'Connor, who's uh, the Energy Policy Officer for Friends of the Earth, which has published research into retrofitting. And a very good morning to you, Claire, and thank you indeed for joining us on the programme this morning. And you found that there's a number of barriers which would prevent people from retrofitting their homes, even if they wanted to. Yes, absolutely. So thanks for having me, first and foremost. But um, So we did some research and we looked at experts in energy poverty and energy efficiency and what they saw as the big barriers for achieving our retrofitting targets in Ireland. Because we've targets of retrofitting half a million homes to B2 standards by 2030. So it's massively ambitious, but has huge potential to reduce our reliance on fossil fuels and to bring down people's energy bills. And the FEI, they came out with their, their new grants in February, which was really positive, and they have some specific um, free home upgrades for people who are receiving social welfare payments. But there's a huge force, there's a huge cohort of people who have been left out of this scheme. So low-income households who can't afford, the, even with the grants, who couldn't afford to, mm. the upfront costs. We have um, tenants as well. There's no specific support or even protections for tenants when they're getting their, their homes um, retrofitted. And as well as that, the traveller community have left left out and then people who are living in older homes aren't catered for it. So there's still a way to go for the policy to be designed in a way that it actually does cater for all everyone in Ireland really and we're, that we're not leaving people out in the cold this mm. winter who can't afford these retrofits. Is it actually worthwhile retrofitting an older home? Uh, I, I think it is. Older homes are some of the most inefficient but at, at the moment the government haven't produced any guidelines on how exactly we're going to um, retrofit older homes. So it's definitely worthwhile in terms of having a warmer home, getting off fossil fuels, like the health benefits are massive. But the government aren't looking at these older homes and aren't coming up with tailored advice on how we can retrofit them. So so the people in older homes are currently being left there. I'm in a home at the moment that was built before the 1900s and there's, there's no real tailored options for us to retrofit now. And what would make that happen? What what what, what would uh, be needed uh, to uh, give you those options? So yeah, the, go- the government really they 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 know what they need to do, and they need to come up with tailored guidelines on mm. how we can retrofit older buildings. Um, and they also need to to look at expanding their energy poverty schemes to cover tenants who are relying on HAP as well, because at the moment they're being left out of the SAI schemes as well. Mm. As well as that, a lot of people aren't really aware of the benefits of retrofitting, so they need to start telling people why they need to retrofit, what the benefits, which are huge. You can, healthier homes um, getting off fossil fuels um, But take your home uh, built over 100 years ago what's the problem with retrofitting that would a heat pump suit the house? 
So no, because it's so inefficient, mm. a heat pump wouldn't actually be efficient in this house. But I had to get a, a new gas boiler myself recently. Mm. Um, and that would be a waste of money taking that out. Exactly, yeah. So, mm. And the thing is that people are But couldn't you do other things? Aren't, aren't there grants for windows and insulation uh, and all sorts of things? You can seal the house, uh, different types of grants. Yeah, and they have set up these one-stop shops. But like I said, there are still people in older homes who aren't being catered for at the moment. And they really need to expand these schemes mm. to, to make sure that everyone is, is being catered for mm. in them. So, And you could, make, what, you could make your home much more energy efficient, but if you don't reach that bear 2 rating, it's not good enough, is it? Basically, the bear 2 is a deep retrofit. So that, that would mean that your heat pump's working in a really efficient way mm. and doesn't and, and means that it will bring your energy bills down. So really, to, to get a heat pump working efficiently, it would need to be at least a C. And at the moment, 80% of Irish homes are a C or lower. So aren't But this is the point. You're not going to qualify for that like-for-like like funding. I mean, we've heard this thing about you spend 25000 and there's 25000 available to you in grants. Yeah, so that, that, that's what's there at mm. the moment. But that 25000 isn't really accessible for a huge number of people. So that's what we're calling for. Mm. We're calling for this these schemes to be opened up and to be, um, and, and in particular for the free retrofitting to, mm. to be more accessible for people who are in energy poverty. Because in 2020, one in five Irish households were living in energy poverty. And this was before the energy energy crisis. So we like to have a lot more people who can't afford to pay their energy bills now. And the government needs to be targeting these people. Mm. They need to expand this warmer home scheme to make sure renters are included and not left out in the cold. Okay, and like that, if you were to change the windows in the house, and I don't know about your windows, but in some houses, uh, an awful lot of heat is lost through the windows. Uh, it could cost you 10000 uh, to replace them. Uh, but if you're not doing that deep retrofit, uh, the grant is limited, I think, to €1,000. Uh, when it comes to tenants, uh, they're hardly going to do it to spend money on somebody else's property. Uh, so how could that be tackled? Uh, what should be done to incentivise landlords? Yeah, so I think we need both carrots and sticks for landlords really to retrofit their homes because like you said, what's the, in- the incentive isn't really there when they're the ones who aren't reaping the benefits. So in the government's Housing for All strategy, they have committed to introducing minimum energy performance standards in rental properties from 2025. Mm. But the thing is, they're not telling landlords of this, about this right now and they also haven't put in specific schemes for landlords to do this. So right now, the stick is coming in in 2025, yeah. but they don't have schemes for landlords. I know, and that could, and that could cost each landlord 50000 even if they get 25000 by way of a, a grant. And if that's too much of an ask, it could compound the already rental crisis that we have in this country. Exactly, yeah. So as well as that, they need to introduce protections for tenants to make sure that they're not going to be evicted, that rents aren't going to go up. So... There's a huge amount of work that the government still need to do in this retrofitting scheme. A lot, a lot of detail hasn't fully been ironed out yet. And I think the rental properties in particular are the ones to be in. Like you said, they're the ones feeling the housing crisis already. And now they're going to be, they're not getting retrofitted. They're going to be the ones who are bearing the brunt of the fossil fuel called fossil fuel cause energy crisis. Yeah, and if the house isn't retrofitted, even if they have a permanent tenancy which is uh, to come in next year, they will have to be evicted because the house will be deemed not fit for rental. Yeah, exactly. So so they really need to put in those protections for these renovations, as they're called, if people are to get kicked out when when, um, when renovations are happening. And they, they need to make a really clear plan on how exactly they're going to introduce these new minimum energy performance standards, which mm. are really positive, could mm. have a really mm. positive impact on the 
I suppose the quality of our rental stock but like you said we're in a housing crisis and we need to make sure that people aren't getting kicked out of their homes for okay. these retrofits. They're just some of the issues that you're highlighting uh, all we have time for uh, at the moment Claire. but thank you indeed uh, for joining us uh, and I think it, it gives uh, some food for thought that's Claire O'Connor who's uh, the Energy Policy Officer with Friends of the Earth. Michael Reed on LMFM. Uh, it was uh, St. Stephen's night almost uh, six years ago when five men acted like animals, uh, according uh, to the judge who passed down sentencing in what was a most horrific case yesterday. At the time, in December of 2016, these men were aged between 17 and 19. And yesterday, Justice Tara Burns passed down sentences of between six and 20 years after what she described was a nightmare of absolutely shocking depravity for a 17-year-old girl which culminated in the Leaving Cert student being sexually assaulted by one of the men. And this was after the four other men had taken turns to rape her. Let's uh, speak to Frank Graney, our courts correspondent. Good morning to you, Frank, and thank you indeed uh, for joining us. Uh, It was depravity on an extreme scale by these men. It really was, beyond words, Michael. I'll do my best to give you and your listeners an overview of of what happened and, and how it has affected this young woman, but... As best I'll do it, I don't think anybody could do it justice. Um, It really was one of the, if not the worst, rape cases that has come before the Central Criminal Court. The horror, the evil that visited that young woman that night, again, at just 17 years of age, a Leaving Cert student who had been out over Christmas, celebrating with friends she hadn't seen in a while. It does really go beyond human comprehension that a group of young boys could do this to somebody could visit this type of evil on somebody and thankfully they were eventually brought to justice. Mm. Uh, and uh, they uh, were brought to justice, uh, as you say, uh, because uh, there was one uh, of uh, the five uh, who uh, pleaded guilty, but the other four fought this. Uh, and uh, then uh, afterwards, uh, I think it was argued that it was in the mid-range of offences. Yeah, that that was certainly an argument that was put forward by some of the defence counsel um, in mitigation. This is at a sentence hearing earlier in the week. But while the judge did listen and consider their submissions, uh, she felt very strongly that there was no way that this was in the mid-range of seriousness when it comes to rape. In fact, she said this was at the upper end. And if you look at the sentences, and we can go through them in a moment, Mm -hmm. but if you look at the sentences that were handed down, you know, the courts are often criticised, whether rightly or wrongly, about some of the sentences that are handed down in cases of sexual crimes. But certainly the sentences that were handed down yesterday were significant. If you take the longest one that was handed down, there was a 20-year sentence. Now, the final year that was suspended. So one of the five men was jailed for 19 years yesterday. 19 years, just to put that into perspective, is around about the same time that a person convicted of murder was spent in prison. Now, this man is unlikely to spend 19 years in prison if he behaves himself while serving that sentence. But still, that was a sentence that was handed down yesterday. And that is significant. He, and ra- he raped a girl twice, though, didn't he? And that was why he yeah. got a longer sentence than the, than the other two, because 
he raped her at, at both locations. And without going into too much detail, because I am conscious, conscious of the time and also the content, um, but maybe just to give your listeners who aren't familiar with the story an overview of what happened on that night. Again, as you say, it happened in the early hours of December 27th, 2016. She was 17. She'd been out for a few drinks with her friends on St. Stephen's Day. Um, nothing excessive. The judge said yesterday um, she had dropped her phone. Her phone wasn't working properly that night. And at the end of the night, she and her friends decided to go for food. Now, she got separated from her friends at this point because she wanted to go to another restaurant for a takeaway. And she met um, a friend there. Um, and he and some of his friends were going back to a house party. And she was invited along. And, you know, no more than deciding to go to another restaurant and not accepting that invitation because she wants to go home. You know, it really is a classic sliding doors kind of a situation, you know, and, and it's something that certainly you get the impression haunts her and it shouldn't. Mm. You know, she did nothing wrong that night. But well, she blames herself. She told the court in her victim impact statement that she blamed herself for getting into the car on that night. And she said she still hates herself for doing it. Yeah, and and the judge was at pains, in fairness to her, the judge was at pains yesterday to just point out to her, and she was in court yesterday, to just point out, look, this wasn't your fault. And sadly, this is a theme that you often see in these types of cases where the, the victim or the survivor in this case um, blames themselves. And, you know, as she was walking home, she couldn't get a taxi uh, the night that was in it. It was a very busy night and she couldn't get a taxi. She got fed up waiting. So she decided that she'd walk home. Now, ordinarily, I mean, this wouldn't have been a problem. It shouldn't have been a problem. Um, a car pulled up. Her name was called. So there's that air of familiarity. And she actually thought, innocently assumed, that this was her friends coming to pick her up and bring her home. And sadly, as we all know now, when she got into that car, uh, she realised that she didn't know any of them. And the person that had actually called out her name just knew her through social media. Um, and that was really when her nightmare began. We heard that... Um, she was told to lie on the laps of the three boys who were in the back of the car. And this, she was told, was um, just in case the guards were passing, that they didn't want the guards to think there were more than five people in the car. But as soon as she was lying in the back of the car and the car was moving, that's when the sexual assault first took place. Um, one of the men started groping her. She moved then at the front at the invitation of the passenger. Um, who noticed that she was becoming distressed and invited her to come and sit on his lap in the front. She accepted. He then started sexually assaulting her. She described how hands were coming at her from the back of the car. The driver got involved at this stage. She pleaded with them to take her home. They didn't. They drove her through some back roads. Then she ended up at a remote location in Kilbegan and all of the men got out of the car. She must have been absolutely terrified as to what was going to happen next. And her worst nightmares were soon realised because... At this point, three of the men raped her. They mm. took turns getting back into the car and raping her. And while this is all going on, she noticed flashes outside the car, which suggests to her that she was being recorded. And that's what was actually taking place, which no doubt added to the trauma that this was being recorded. She was then driven to a second location on the pretense that she was being brought home. They dropped two of the guys off en route. And the three that remained in the car then at this point she said that they were completely silent, weren't speaking to her. It was as if she wasn't there. She was pleading with them to take her home. They ignored her. They pulled into a car park. She was kept in that car despite her best attempts to get out. They wouldn't allow her to get out. And she was repeatedly mm. raped uh, again. They eventually did release her. And we saw CCTV footage during the trial, very distressing footage of this woman. Again, 
just to point out she was 17 years of age. Not that it's okay for this to happen at any age, but just the innocence of a 17-year-old girl watching her on CCTV footage, running for her life in hysterics. She managed to make it to a friend's house. Um, the friends then brought her down to the local guard station. And in fairness to the guardie and the investigation team, they were knocking on doors one hour later. Mm-hmm. And that's what led to, I suppose, yesterday's convictions and, and, and one of yeah. the men pleading guilty at, at the outset of the mm-hmm. trial. And, and, and if you like, Michael, I can go through because I think these, these, these guys should be named. Yeah. Um, sure. And we can go through the sentences that were handed down yesterday. So as I said, the longest one was a 19-year sentence. And that was handed down to a 24-year-old man called Gabriel Gomez de Roca. He is from Mount Armstrong in Rahan in Tullamore in County, County Offaly. And he received that sentence for sexually assaulting, repeatedly raping and falsely imprisoning the girl. Again, he raped her twice, as he said. That's why he got that longer sentence. Another 24-year-old man by the name of Eduardo Diaz Ferreira Filho um, of Riverview in Kilbegan in County Westmead was jailed for 17 years for sexual assault, rape and also false imprisonment. He also, he was one of the two men who prevented her from getting out of the car, he and uh, Daroca. Um, the driver is a 22-year-old man called Marcos Vinicius da Silva Umbelino. He is also from Riverview in Kilbegan and he got 14 years for sexual assault and rape. And we heard that he is the only one of the five who doesn't accept the, the verdict of the jury. He has offered no apology, no expression of remorse and that was certainly taken into consideration by the judge when she was constructing a sentence for him. A 23-year-old man called Ethan Nicolau with an address at Brosna Park in Kilbegan was convicted of sexually assaulting her twice, jailed yesterday for six years. And the final man then is a 24-year-old man called Connor Byrne. He's from Ballybegan Moat and he was the only one who, who admitted what he did. Albeit at the 11th hour, he pleaded guilty to raping her after the trial had already begun. I think it was two days in and he was commended for doing that both by the survivor of this uh, attack and the judge um, who told him yesterday that he had ran with the pack that night, that he had really let himself down. He had done an untold wrong on this this woman. Um, but he, she did accept that it must have been difficult for him to break ranks. Um, and she said there was redemption in his actions. She jailed him for 10 years. So just to compare, I suppose, the ones who contested the, the rape charge were given sentences of 19 years, uh, 17 years, as I mentioned. And, and this guy got 10 years for, for pleading guilty at the outset. OK, justice has been served. Frank, thank you indeed for joining us today. Frank Greeny, our courts correspondent. Michael, Michael Reed on, on LMFM. LMFM. Uh, thanks uh, to Eric Cuthbert, who wants uh, another bridge. Uh, he says, apart from the narrow, narrow water bridge, uh, there should be uh, another bridge going from Blue Anchor to Soldiers Point. It'd be a great shortcut to the Cooley area. Thanks, Eric. Uh, I think if one bridge is built, uh, well, there'll be some of us at least who'll be surprised. But thanks uh, for that. Um, it might be built, uh, but it'll be the Irish government, it seems, at this stage, uh, who'll be funding it despite it uh, being a, a bridge uh, that should have been part funded by the Irish and uh, the British governments. But uh, the most of uh, the funding was originally to come from Europe uh, until things went wrong. Let's hope it goes right this time. Sean is in Drogheda. Sean was uh, listening uh, to the item on retrofitting homes. He says he'd love to do that if he had the money. He says he thinks it's wrong that we're being penalised by carbon taxes on fuel, especially with the rising costs. It's only the rich who can afford to get their houses retrofitted. The rest of us face uncertainty, not knowing how we're going to be able to afford to heat our homes. It's all wrong. Thanks uh, for that, Sean. Apparently, uh, if you're right, uh, the rich will get richer because you'll save 
on spending. You spend the money on the retrofitting and in time you'll save money because of what you save on energy costs. Uh, Raid says it's so distressing listening uh, to the Midlands rape trial case. That poor young woman, please God, she can try and get on with her life now that these monsters are behind bars. You have to wonder about these men. What kind of humans are they? It's just horrific what they did. So glad that they're off the streets so that no other woman suffers the same fate. And it is thanks to this brave girl who was, prefer- pre- who was prepared to testify. Thanks, uh, Marade, for that. There's a, a lot of praise for that young girl and, uh, I think, uh, for Justice Tara Burns. Uh, not just for the length of the sentences that she handed down but the manner in which she handed them down and uh, the way that she described the offences on that girl who was re-traumatised relived the whole thing because of uh, four of uh, the men initially at least uh, pleading not guilty so she had to go to court she had to talk it through she had to make her, her, her case known and live through it as the case was heard out uh, and this is one of the points that she made in her victim impact statement Uh, 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 an assault on top of an assault if you like Uh, but she stands as an example to anybody else who's suffered uh, an injury of that sort who's suffered sexual violence of any sort uh, and has proven the point that you can get justice and justice has been served uh, with those lengthy sentences for those men Jim is in Navin and he says it's brilliant uh, to see uh, those rapists of uh, that poor girl in County Offaly get those long prison sentences. Maybe if we had more women judges, proper sentences would become the norm for animals like them. Fair play to the judge on giving the girl some justice and praise for her bravery and her dignity. Thank you, Jim and Navin, for your text to the programme uh, this morning. There's a, a few more texts uh, about that case and we'll uh, come to them in, in a moment. Uh, but uh, we'll hear uh, some local politicians in the Dáil speaking yesterday uh, about a number of issues. Um, we're going to begin with energy uh, and we were talking about retrofitting your homes and indeed how you can do it if you can uh, afford to do it, but you can't if you can't afford to do it, and so on. And this is an issue that was raised by Sinn Féin's Darren O'Rourke, who was talking about this transition in the Dáil. I agree entirely in terms of the transition we need to we need to make, and there's huge opportunity and there's lots, and I'm sure some of it will be covered later on today in terms of what government can do to, to greater achieve our, our, our transition to renewables more speedily. But this winter, families are facing in the region of the low 30% uh, increases in electricity and and gas prices. Um, And that's on on top of increases we we saw uh, uh, for dual fuel users, 800 euros uh, January 22 versus January 21 in in that year. Families will not be able to to cope, Minister. Uh, You meet with uh, St Vincent de Paul or MABS and they'll talk to you about people who are self-disconnecting for fear or the shame of actually being disconnected. Um, Sinn Féin has called for a mini-budget. We've called for additional measures in terms of fuel allowance, in terms of a discretionary fund, in terms of cash payments to people in need. Um, You know very well, Minister, that we need to see action before October. Uh, uh, Energy providers are indicating during the summer, in September, they're going to be increasing prices and it's going to drive people further into poverty. We need to see a response from government. That's Sinn Féin's Darren O'Rourke. It was uh, the Minister for the Environment, Damon Ryan, who was taking questions. This approach has been advocated by Sinn Féin. I think the government approach is better where we are. 
um, sitting down, talking to the whole variety of partners, social partners, Social Justice Ireland and the other uh, groups and parts of the social pillar in our National Economic and Social Council, environmental pillar, but also unions, employers, to work as we work best in this country when we work in collaboration. And I think it's better for us to engage in that process, to look to the budget in October, to, so, to look at what social welfare or other measures uh, may be needed to help us through what is going to be a very difficult period in this country and in every country across Western Europe. Eamon Ryan making it clear nothing's really going to happen until the budget in October. Labour TD for Louth and East Meath, Jed Nash, was making the point that energy costs are, are so expensive now that many are already finding it unaffordable. Nearly 20% of all households in this country uh, are experiencing energy poverty. You know, up to March, uh, energy prices um, have gone up by almost 50% in a year. And this, as you know, is hitting low-income households across the country the hardest. Energy companies, as you know, as you know, have posted hyper profits uh, this year. So what plans do you have to ask the energy companies to do more, to help the state, uh, to help citizens combat the ever-rising costs of keeping the lights on and keeping the heating on. That's Jed Nash. Again, the response came from Eamon Ryan. Yes, as Deputy Nash knows, the, the responsibility for regulation of the electricity market, including the compliance of electricity and gas suppliers with their licensed conditions, is a matter for the independent regulator, the Commission for Regulation of U- Utilities. Okay, so no joy for Jed Nash that time round. Uh, we'll get back to the doll and some local issues in a moment. Uh, but let me go back to some of uh, the comments again and more people talking about uh, that case that. Uh, multiple rape and assault on that 17-year-old girl uh, in 2016 and indeed the lengthy sentences uh, that were handed down yesterday. Uh, Somebody saying that judge who referred to those who raped and sexually assaulted that young girl as animals uh, is very wrong. I was brought up and surrounded by all kinds of animals and I've never seen any of them rape or sexually assaulting each other. I think uh, the point there the caller is making is uh, that... Uh, they don't deserve to be called animals. They're much worse than that. Um, we'd Ellen in touch then who said uh, they should have been jailed for life. Good behaviour, shouldn't come into it uh, and then deport them, uh, she says. Uh, thanks uh, for that. Margaret says, Michael, what a brave young girl at 17, not yet a, a woman. Pure savagery, abusing someone who could not fight back. They did it because they could overpower an innocent young girl. What makes them evil to the core? They denied it. She will never get over it. They stole her innocence, but she will survive. And in time, she'll learn to live with it. Like all victims of sexual abuse, uh, they blame themselves. But they shouldn't. She shouldn't. But now she has justice. It should help to ease that feeling of self-blame, says Margaret. Thank you, Margaret, uh, for your text to the programme uh, as well in relation to that. Uh, we'll come to more messages as we get them through the programme. If you'd like to make contact, we'd love to hear from you. But we're going to go back to the doll now uh, and a local issue that was raised yesterday. Look, we, we need to deal with the issue, obviously, of communal heating systems. Um, look, I, I've spoken many times before to you, uh, Minister, in relation to uh, Caroline Hall. In fairness to Deputy Hurrigan, she got to the point that we have uh, 
a slight break at the minute due to the time of year it is, but that we need to look at it. The, the gas-fed nature of these needs to be dealt with under, I think, planning laws. Um, it's an aberration that happened in Britain and Ireland. Britain has changed the laws. We need an SAI, SEAI grant system that will deliver the change back to whether it is biofuels of, of some Thanks. sort. But we do need to look at mitigations because people are under incredible pressure paying huge bills. That's Sinn Féin's Rory O'Muraco bringing the case of Carlin Hall once again to the government. Eamon Ryan responded. We need to switch away from gas in every uh, possible use. Uh, It will have an interim role in in a variety of different areas, but particularly in heating of our buildings and particularly new buildings. Oh, beg your pardon. Um, The minister was saying that in time, uh, new energies uh, will help to solve uh, that problem, which I'm not sure will come as much comfort. We're going to stay in the Dundalk area. And another local issue that was raised in the Dáil by Fine Gael TD, Fergus O'Dowd. I just want to make a point about Dalgan House. Uh, 23 people died there during COVID. The Taoiseach in January promised me in the Dáil that the government or the Department of Health was examining options to respect and meet the needs of the families and their concerns about these deaths. Since then, we've heard absolutely nothing. I think it's a disgrace that the Department of Health is refusing to act in this matter. And a challenge to you, Minister, if these were children, we would have our inquiry. Is it because they're older citizens that we hear nothing from your department? Well, there hasn't been anything, has there? Certainly not uh, for some time. And uh, Minister Raymond Ryan said he'd pass on uh, the complaints uh, that Fergus O'Dowd was making yesterday. I might add those comments to the Minister when I'm passing on uh, Deputy Conway Walsh's um, uh, request that your comments and your view, which are absolutely heartfelt and very sincere and true and reflect, I'm sure, the views of the family of those who died. There you go, that's Eamon Ryan uh, speaking in the Dáil and responding that time to Fine Gael TD in Louth and East Meath, Fergus O'Dowd. Michael Reed on LMFM. It's all tickety-boo, it seems, at uh, the airport uh, this morning. Thank God. <laughs> it would want to be, wouldn't it? Uh, especially if you consider uh, the outrage that there's been and, uh, indeed, all of the attention there has been at the dismal failure to provide passengers with a, a decent service by the DAA. We've absolutely been focused on what's in the interest of the Irish public and the travelling public to make sure that they are served. They were not served last weekend. And everyone accepts that. And it was totally unacceptable. The mistakes were made on rostering and making sure that there weren't enough people is something that is inexcusable. There's no way you can get around that it, it was they majorly let down the airport, the workers, everyone there, and the country, the wider country. So that is agreed. We have to rectify it. We've been meeting every day, myself and Minister Nocton, with the airport authorities to make sure that they do put plans in place so that it doesn't happen again. And it's not, they can't guarantee that, but we're going to make sure that every single thing is done to avoid it. They have 220 meetings this morning, told that there's some 225 of the new staff that they have new uh, in place. It'll take another three weeks, about 30 additional a week for, for each of the next three, three weeks as they come out of training. They committed this morning to hire a further and train a further 100 staff to make sure that they've uh, um, room in case of any eventualities, so that that doesn't happen again, and it can't. And we will do whatever we can in government to support them to avoid that eventuality. They also made a mistake. I think it was in May 2020 when the original decision was made to 
applied the redundancy scheme, too many workers were left off. That is clear now. But the critical thing the Irish public want to know is that the additional staff are now put in place so that they can get through the airport without missing a flight and without being in a triage system which requires them to stand outside the concourse. That's only there in case of emergencies. It will be introduced starting this weekend, but only on a very small scale basis. But it's in the event, in the event that anyone is restricted from entering that they're not standing out in wet weather. Now, the Minister for Transport, Eamon Ryan. Let's uh, talk now to Martin Skelly, who's uh, the Director of Navin Travel and uh, a board member of the Irish Travel Agents Association. Good morning to you, Martin, and thank you indeed uh, for joining us. I'm sure you're as relieved as anybody, if not more so, uh, to hear that the airport is running smoothly this morning. Yeah, good morning, Michael. We are indeed, yeah, we're, we're really relieved. And in actual fact, I had word from somebody at the airport a while ago that in Terminal 1, the security delays were down to 10 minutes. So that's really good news. Uh, hard to imagine it'll stay at 10 minutes. I'm sure it'll be longer over the weekend. But it seems to be heading in the right direction. Mm, having said that, I, I think I'd have been taking a very deep breath and bracing myself if I'd been heading to the airport this morning, just dreading the experience. Uh, what have you been hearing from people? Everybody is very anxious, and it's the worry, it's the uncertainty, and that's the uh, big issue for us at the moment. People are in contact with us all the time, looking for updates to see what the situation is. They're looking for advice about what they should do, and they feel let down and they feel frustrated. Everybody understands that when you're travelling, you know, there will be delays, things can happen. And in a way, the operators are very often at arm's length from it. Like a flight delay, could, the flight could go technical, there could be air traffic control or weather incidents. And people, while students, it's inconvenient. They understand and expect that. And the operators are, you know, the airlines are a little bit at arm's length from that. But we've never had a situation before where the infrastructure of the airport have let people down, you know, and they've absolutely diminish the trust that the travelling public have. Now, it seems that they're working hard to fix it. Over the last few days, they've done quite well, it would appear. I was there on Wednesday morning with the group who were leaving, and it ran quite smoothly. Uh, the entire process to check in uh, was smooth, a little bit of a delay because people arrived just before check-in opened, uh, but the check-in was prompt, and the time through security was uh, a about 35, 40 minutes or thereabouts, and that was for a group going through. So it has been working well. Mm. You know, that's the information we get during the week. It has I been know, working but well. what we saw last Sunday really would put you off going anywhere if you didn't have to go. Did you hear from anybody who had reconsidered their plans or cancelled their plans? Uh, I have to say we had one family who cancelled their plans. We have a number who were very worried about it. But it's a waiting game, it's wait and see, watch what's happening. I think the people who are worried are very much reassured now by what's been happening. And in a way, like our sympathy was out, in, you know, in a lot of cases, well, first of all, to our customers and to the travelling public, mm. but also to the security staff and the check-in staff at the airlines, they're working under huge pressure as well. Yeah. And what do you make of these arrangements? It seems as though they're probably necessary uh, but the idea that you can't get a, a taxi to the terminal building or you can't uh, get dropped to the terminal building and that passenger drop-off has moved to the Atrium Road now, I think will be seen as very inconvenient for a lot of people. Again, it's back to everybody feeling let down. 
Uh, I think you have to balance the disadvantages against the benefits in the event that there is uh, an overflow or major delays at security, we can't have a situation where people are standing outside and possibly standing out in the rain. We can't allow that to happen. And the only available place for that is is the um, sheltered areas that they're putting up at the uh, taxi block Mm. facility. It's not that far. It is inconvenient, but it's actually not that far on ATM Road. It's about 200 yards. Mm. And, you know, you're going through the... um, they, uh, no bother to me and yeah. probably no bother to you but some people would have a big difficulty with 200 yards uh, and there is a, a question of uh, people who need uh, to be assisted onto planes with mobility issues uh, as well and if they get stuck in the queues for that matter Absolutely, that is a big issue but again uh, our, we, we would, our advice to people is one if there is a difficulty talk to the airport security staff because one, people are going to be brought in people who have assistance booked will be given the assistance. Those who need it, if they haven't it booked, will be given assistance there too. So it's to talk to the people on the spot, on the ground, and they will help. What about nervous flyers? Yes, it's always an issue for nervous flyers. This adds adds to the anxiety, doesn't it? Uh, It does. It adds to the it does. It adds to the anxiety and it adds to the worry. And that's the real disappointment, that for a lot of people, they're travelling for the first time after two years, and in some cases longer. You know, So there's a very understandable nervousness about travelling in the first instance. This is an extra layer of concern. But thankfully, it, we seem to be coming out the other end of it. It looks like it's working smoothly. And our advice to people is to listen to... Uh, what the DA are saying about checking in. People Mm. are being advised at the moment to check in two and a half hours before flights for European destinations. Add on up up to an hour onto that if you're uh, dropping off bags. And it's an hour longer for long-haul flights. Mm. And whilst we accept that it is adding to the challenges of travelling, at least if you have a clear path and if you know it's working, there's a reassurance in that. If you mm. follow the advice, there is a reassurance in that. But, and I think uh, people are getting a bit of comfort from it though. Yeah, a lot of people like to get to the airport early for lots of reasons. Uh, not just nervous flyers, uh, but to take out the whole anxiety of uh, the journey so that you're not panicking watching the clock and all of that. A lot of people like to get there. Some people like to make a, a day out of it uh, and so on. Uh, and now they're being told uh, they can't come to the airport early or if they do, they'll have to stand outside or might have to stand outside at least. Yeah, well, we hope it won't come to that, that they have to stand outside. And I think also when people do come to the airport early, the early was generally two to three hours early. It was quite uncommon for people to be arriving four hours before flights, even those you know who, who like the experience of the airport, like to browse the shops, mm. sit down, have a meal or something beforehand. The time factor was very often three hours for that, two to three hours, was the common time factor. And that's still the case, really. Mm. But you will always have people going early as well for other reasons. Uh, I mean, as we've been discussing on the programme, you don't want to time it to the second uh, because you might have a puncture on the way. Uh, There might be a a tree down uh, or or God knows what delays your journey. So uh, especially if you're coming from further away and the further away, the more time uh, you'll give yourself so that you won't be late. Uh, and th- this doesn't really help with that, does it? 
No, it doesn't. And I think everybody that's going to the airport, you know, they're going to be concerned. I hope there's no big traffic jams on the M50. You know, I mm. hope there are no accidents on the road. I hope I don't get a puncture. That's part and parcel of normal life. And I think that's still the case. Uh, how do you police against it? How do you protect against it? The advice is still to be there two and a half hours for you to be at the airport time and to be at the airport two and a half hours for short haul flights uh, and three and a half hours for long haul flights and extra time then to check in bags. Like mm. that advice hasn't changed. So we would be saying to people to follow that advice. Okay. What, what about our reputation in all of this, Martin? Uh, I'm sure you're hearing from uh travel agents and watching uh, what's been said uh, internationally. I, I know I was reading an article in the New York Times a few days ago describing how somebody felt that they had to be in the airport seven hours before their flight was due to take off and it didn't sound very good and didn't like the idea of people in New York reading that, let alone elsewhere in the world. Uh, what have you been hearing uh, from other countries? Exactly the same. We have been let down and badly let down and our reputation has suffered. Uh, from one point, thankfully, we're not the only one because that kind of focus is on a, a number of other airports as well. Uh, it has happened to us and it shouldn't have happened to us. If it's persistent and long-term, it will have longer-term effects. If it's a one-off, as we hope it will be and it seems to have been, then I think we'll get over it very quickly. It doesn't change mm. the fact that we've been let down. And should we have been surprised by the passenger numbers? I mean, you're in the business of selling holidays. I take it you knew uh, that the demand was back and people were travelling. Should the DAA not have known that? They should absolutely have been totally on top of that. It didn't come as a surprise that there were going to be 50,000 people going through the airport last weekend. There are going to be up 40,000 people, between 40 and 50,000 people going through the airport on a daily basis, regularly over the next number of months. That will peak and it will go above that on certain dates. Everybody knows the numbers. The airlines know the number of people that are on the flights. The DAA should be, if they're not, they should be in contact with the airlines all the time. That should have been known. It seems so simple. Now, I know they were caught by sicknesses. I know they were caught by rostering problems. Uh, but it's, it's not an excuse. It, it wasn't good enough and we can't have it happening again. Yeah, well, it was an appalling, uh, appalling mistake. Yeah, uh, uh, of the the, 17, the 17 security years. guards, though, Martin, who were on the roster, who shouldn't have been on the roster. And uh, uh, as we heard in the programme yesterday, people make mistakes, but there wasn't a system in place to catch the mistake. Yeah, and it's a regulated industry. If an airline flight is delayed, customers are entitled to be compensated and they're entitled to redress, be it uh, make phone calls, be it um, be given uh, vouchers for food at airports. So that end of the industry is well regulated and delays are dealt with generally quite well. But we haven't had a situation, like this is new, we haven't had this situation before. You expect the institution of the airport to operate efficiently and they let us down. Mm. It sounds like they've learned uh, a very severe lesson. It does indeed. Yeah, and well, let's hope. <laughs> yeah, well, I, I, I can say, Michael, yeah. if we weren't optimistic, we wouldn't be in this business. We've yeah. come out of mm. two years of a crisis. Yeah. We didn't yeah. need this. Yeah. We will regard it for now. We'll watch the space. Yeah. We'll regard it for now as a weekend blip and we look forward to our customers 
uh, travelling without the kind of stress and delays uh, yeah. into the summer. Well, if the mistake or mist- later this week. if the mistake or the mistakes have been learned, uh, the proof will be in the pudding, and there won't be a repeat. Uh, we'll leave it there for the moment, Martin, and oh. hope that those mistakes have been learned. And thank you indeed uh, for joining us on the program as always. Martin Skelly is a director of Navin Travel, and he's a board member of the Irish Travel Agents Association. Michael Reed on LMFM. I don't know if you've noticed uh, the increase in uh, the cost of living. If you haven't, you're very much in the minority, it seems. 70% of parents say that cost of living increases have negatively affected their children over the past six months, and almost two-thirds are worrying, and on a regular basis, about being able to provide their children with daily essentials, things like food, heat and electricity. This is according to an Amoric research study that was carried out on behalf of Bernardo's. Let's speak to Stephen Moffat, who is the National Policy Manager with Bernardo's. And a very good morning to you, Stephen, and thank you indeed for joining us. Uh, People are worried about essentials, but they're worried about the cost of everything, aren't they? Yeah, pretty much. From what our our findings across our service and from, from the survey is, that it's, you know, the essentials are things that they're worrying most about in terms of uh, food, heating, electricity, but it, it goes beyond that to uh, issues around clothing, <clears throat> to social activities, you know, after school clubs, uh, you know, little trips that people, families might have planned out in the past, uh, to issues, you know, ranging to, you know, being able to afford uh, me- medical bills, uh, medical appointments, uh, to, you know, ha- other housing costs, which might, you know, for some families, include rent and obviously mortgage repayments. Um, mm. So, yeah, so it's across the whole spectrum uh, of costs that families would usually incur. Because I think, you know, even the areas where, where costs aren't going up, um, the the impact of higher energy inflation and uh, cost increases are, are so much that they're, they're bleeding into uh, people's other, other budgets. Mm. Uh, and I suppose most of us at least have noticed that there's been a huge increase in uh, the cost of living. So uh, it's not surprising that people are worried about it, but uh, I take it it's far more serious uh, than that, uh, that you found a a lot of people just aren't able to afford to keep up with the increase in the cost of living, and that's resulted in people doing without. Yeah, no, exactly. So what we would see particularly around a lot of families we support is they would have been struggling financially in the past but would have just been about able to manage whereas now they're, they're hitting a point where it goes from a financial struggle to a financial crisis so you know if they might have had you know we're talking 30 40 euro extra disposable income to spend at the end of a month in the past they're now going into negative mon- money and so when their heating bills go up when their food costs go up they're, they're having to cut back there is no other you know bits of money they can put away to save so when they forecast into the future, they're having to think, right, where do we cut back? Where do we go without? Because this isn't a case of, you know, we, we won't have, have as much to put away. It's we, We've really got to take out of out of essentials. Mm-hmm. And of course, with, you know, with most families, different things crop up. You know, something will might break down. Uh, there might be a sudden uh, emergency payment that needs to be made. And that's where families are really getting hammered, is, uh, that we're seeing. You know, where do they, they're already struggling, they can't meet their bills because they've gone up so much, and then they have something that just tips them over the edge, and then they find themselves having to try and catch up, and, yeah. and the level of financial 
stress that they're being placed under is, is really considerable, particularly mm-hmm. low-income families. Well, yeah, you can imagine easily uh, the cooker breaking down, needing to be replaced. You can't afford the cooker and, you know, takeaway food can be very uh, expensive uh, if you're not able to cook a, a, at home. Uh, but when you talk uh, uh, about there being so little wriggle room, uh, I take it that there's very tough decisions. People are choosing to eat or heat, uh, as the case may be. And uh, if they've already chose not to heat, uh, are they able to afford to eat uh, in the way that you would hope you'd have three square meals? So what we would be seeing, you know, is exactly that. You're having to, uh, families are having to choose between the two. And, and obviously the difficulty is if you don't have, uh, say, heating or you don't pay for electricity, you prioritise food. How do you cook that food? How do you store the food? Uh, but obviously within the food, if you, if you cut back as much as you possibly can and costs are still going up, um, you know, what ends up happening and what we've seen in previous studies is that parents tend to go without. You know, so parents won't be uh, having three square meals. They'll be doing as much as possible as they can. But, but even within that, you know, it, it means that we've we've had families in which, you know, they've had to decide, right, for this week we're having to eat tinned foods for the week. Mm-hmm. You know, that's to try and make to pay bills. And obviously that's not good on the, on uh it doesn't no. have a, a positive impact on the children. But in terms of children are aware of what's mm. happening then. You know, they're aware they shouldn't be eating tin foods for a week, but mm. obviously physically for their development, uh, it's it's problematic. Well, you'll soon end up sick, I suppose, and people are, are, are not going to the doctor or they're not buying medicine because they can't afford it, apparently. Yeah, so we know that the government has made, uh, you know, very positive strides in terms of um, making sure that uh, younger children have free GP care. Um, and, you know, they are planning to extend that, which we uh, we commend them on. And the sooner they're able to bring that up to six and seven year olds, uh, the better uh, and continue to raise that age. But one of the issues is that, you know, when we asked uh, parents about this, uh, they were saying, you know, you know one, in, one in six parents said either themselves or their children they were having to cut back on. Uh, or go without. So our concern is that parents themselves are saying, well, actually, look, the children might have free GP care, but the parents themselves might be feeling poorly and they're not going mm. to the doctor because they they say, well, that's 60 euro, that's got to go towards electricity bills, that's got to, got mm. to go towards uh, heating. Uh, that, you know, without that, their children will go out. So mm. that's obviously concerning. And as well as that, there's an issue for, you know, the, the additional things that won't be covered by free GP care, you know, there's some treatments, some lotions that we're seeing in some of our services that, that parents are knocking on our door saying, look, we need an extra, you know, 10 euro to pay for this, some of the families that we support. Okay. You know, the, these yeah. are the essentials for children. Yeah, very hard times for people in that situation. Uh, you're suggesting uh, that a hardship fund would be available through the Department of Social Protection. How would that work? So we, there, there's existing mechanisms out there. So there's a, an urgent needs payment and there's an exceptional uh, needs payment uh, scheme that you know the Department of Social Protection uh, they would run. Um, and so at the moment, if you had a, you know, if you were regularly not being able to meet sort of food costs or not being able to meet uh, electricity bills or heating bills, you wouldn't be uh, usually fit the criteria to apply for those funds. You know, they're they're for more the absolute exceptional needs. So we think the government should either expand those uh, those programs or develop a new cost of living hardship fund in which uh, you still go to the same individuals. So it, generally, it's community welfare officer, and you would say be able to demonstrate: look, we can't pay for essentials; children are going without. We need immediate decisions because what we're finding is, you know, sometimes families are going to sort of community welfare officers; they're looking for funds, 
they might come back a week later and say, oh, yeah, well, there might be some money. But that means there's been a week in which families are waiting, a week in which children are going without essentials. So we want a fund that's put in that, uh, you know, it's, is able that families can apply to to get decisions as soon as possible, and as families obviously demonstrating that they're it, it's about essentials, and we we appreciate this is exceptional circumstances, mm-hmm. you know this level of, uh, of increases, and so we need sort of an exceptional response from governments to particularly you know families who the lowest income families who are really being disadvantaged most by recent uh, inflation. Mm. Are, are any of those families working? Yeah, we would definitely yeah. see uh, families working, you know, particularly, you know, you might have lone parent families uh, where a parent is working, um, you know, and doing as much as possible. Um, they may or may not be uh, uh, within income support thresholds. Um, but it, it just in terms of, you know, these levels of increases are such that they, it's nothing they could have predicted. Um, so the families will be doing as much as possible uh, around work. Um you know, there may be families who aren't working for certain for, for varying reasons, but yes, yeah, certainly a lot of families we would support would be would have a parent who's working. Okay, and uh, I mean the idea that two thirds of uh, the three hundred people surveyed are, are going without essentials regularly is pretty shocking. Um, how representative of the population do you think that is? So we we think it's a you know the survey that we went out with through a more recent. Uh, it's, a, it's a national representative survey. Um, you know, the numbers are just over 300, and the reason for that is that the national number was a, was 1,000, that we had to sort of break that down into parents uh, with children under the age of 18 who were living with them. Um, but we think that's, a, you know, it's, and mm. we've talked to a more research, we're experts in this, and, mm. you know, it's, it's a fairly representative, yeah. Oh, representative yeah. of, of yeah. the country. Yeah. Yeah. Mm. So that's, and that's what something that we wanted yeah. to make sure that and, we're I'm not questioning the finding, I'm just wondering if it is, uh, if the finding is that it, uh, the belief uh, from the survey is that nationally two-thirds of families are going without essentials. Yeah, and we, we definitely would, would think that, and, you know, we've got Gosh. services mm. across the country uh, we've got about 45 services dotted around the yeah. country from rural areas to urban areas. Uh, you know, we've got services from Limerick to Dublin to Cork. Uh, and, you know, we're seeing it across those areas, all those areas. There's no areas going without. We've, um, you know, staff are reporting back from the Midlands, you know, similar problems that we're, we're experiencing in north inner city Dublin. Um, so we think, yeah, generally the findings seem to match up with certainly what we're seeing on the ground across uh, our project workers. All right. Hard times. Thank you indeed, Stephen, for joining us on the programme. That's uh, Stephen Moffat, National Policy Manager with Barnardo's. Michael Reed on LMFM. If you have a gambling problem or if you know somebody who has a problem gambling, you may be interested to know that there is help available through 20 of the family resource centres across the country. It's an initiative that is being provided by the Gambling Awareness Trust. Its executive director is Pam Bergen, who's on the line. And a very good morning to you, Pam, and thank you indeed for joining us on the programme this morning. Tell us a little bit uh, about this service that you're providing. Good morning, Michael. Um, so this is a collaboration between ourselves, Gambling Awareness Trust, and the National Forum of Family Resource Centres. So as you said, it will see 20 family resource centres across the country provide confidential, affordable counselling service for anyone affected by problem gambling. Okay, and there's quite a few people in this country who are uh, affected by problem gambling. 55,000, I think, is the estimate, is it? 
Yeah, the Manute report published last year estimated there to be 55,000 problem gamblers in Ireland. And it also echoed international research on how for every gambling addict um, or person identified with a gambling disorder, at least six other people are directly affected. So these people are their partners, parents, siblings, children, friends. And like the addiction itself, they're mostly unseen, they're under-supported. So, um, you know, we know the Family Resource Centres have an excellent track record in providing a huge range of supports and services in the local community. Mm. And they they include, you know, professional affordable counselling. Okay, and tell us about the counselling that will be provided because uh, that is uh, the service that is on offer to problem gamblers. Uh, uh, um, Is it like any other addiction? I mean, is it like being addicted to food or being an alcoholic or smoking or whatever? Well, look, I mean, it obviously shares a a lot of um, the similar traits, but gambling addiction is is different in that, you know, it's hidden really you you can't you, you can't identify a person with a gambling addiction. You know you will you will easily identify somebody. Do you know that mm. is is uh, kind of trying to cope with uh, alcohol addiction or mm. substance? Substance, yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, you know it's visible, but um, the person sitting next to you on the bus, um, you know, on their phone, are they gambling? Are they just browsing? I mean, it's that's that's the issue. It's uh, it's very hard to identify, mm. and often you know the problem. Um, problem goes unnoticed for quite some time. You know, people gambling compulsively can be very secretive. Family members would report, you know, that they, they didn't really know that anything was happening. They didn't realise that there was a problem developing mm. um, until that problem got out of hand. Yeah, I think most people who smoke end up addicted to smoking and the same with a, a lot of other substances for that matter. Um it, it wouldn't be the same with drink and it wouldn't be the same with gambling. Uh, there's a lot of people who enjoy an odd flutter uh, uh, and there's some who just can't gamble because they are always chasing that win. Do you know the difference between the two or is that possible to explain? Well, I mean, that's uh, what you've said is true. I mean, a huge, a huge amount of people, I mean, two thirds of the Irish population um, participate in some form of gambling. You know, it's, it's an enjoyable kind of um, recreational activity for a lot of people. But for the minority, there, there is a very vulnerable cohort of people who, um, who just, who can't um, enjoy gambling, um, you know, that it becomes a problem for them. Um, and, and like you said there, you know, this, chasing losses I mean that's that's the first sign like there's a problem here um, you know when you can't place a bet and, and leave it at that when you're constantly you know looking for the next and trying to maybe win back money um, because you've got into a cycle of gambling more than you can afford to you know that's that's when it becomes noticeable and that's when you know bills might go unpaid debts build up and that's where the problem starts to impact on family and, and wider society Is it like other addictions in that there's denial? Well, yeah, I mean, that's, that's, you know, part and parcel of it. I mean, I think until you get maybe to a crisis point, um, you know, do you, do you actually stop and say, right, I've got a problem here? Um, you know, sometimes it's it's an intervention by a family member or mm. a close friend that will will point out, look, you know, what you're doing here is is not healthy. It's it's um, it's harmful, and you need to stop or you need to get help. Mm. And destructive, uh, not just uh, for the gambler, but uh, for the six people. I imagine uh, who you say are impacted uh, by the problem gambling uh, because it can be very destructive. People can lose an awful lot of money very quickly. 
That's it, yeah. And, you know, um, whether, you know, you're a young single person um, or, you know, uh, part of a family, um, you know, the, the, the spend of, of money that, that you can't afford to spend, you know, it's going to cause problems in a household. Um, so that's why we are, we're trying to encourage people that if you think there's a problem, if, if you're, um, you know, an affected other, if you're a parent or, or a sibling or a partner, um, and, and you don't know how to respond or, and you're not really sure about, you know, what, what actions you need to take. Mm. You can pick up the phone to Connect Family Resource Centre there in Drogheda and there will be a person there available to talk to you to set up an appointment and, and to support you through what you're going through with the person in your family. You know, for the person who feels that it's, it's you know, they have a problem, they've identified that, that, you know, this can't go on or they need some support, they need some help or advice. They can pick up the phone too. Um, you know, all of the, the therapists that have been recruited into this uh, national service by the FRCs will um, have done um, the required training in responding to problem gambling. Mm. Um, so, that, you know, they are qualified. Um, it's a confidential, affordable service. Um, and, you know, there'll be no long waiting lists the services there. That's really the message we want to get out. Very good. It's a service that's available through the Family Resource Centres in Loud and in Mead, as I understand it, Pam. If people go into counselling, how long would they expect to be in counselling or is there a typical run in that sense? Well, look, I mean, people start off with a kind of, um, you know, maybe six week uh, six weeks of counseling in mind but that you know it's that's totally dependent on on the therapist and the person um you know maybe uh, a more maybe if it's a more complex case they need to be referred into one of the other services you know maybe a residential placement in Kunwara or you know they might need um people's needs are going to vary and it will be down to the the counselor and the person receiving the support to decide what's um what's going to be um, the best move for them or, or the best course of treatment. Okay, well people can inquire through their local family resource centre if uh, they wish to avail of those services. Pam, thank you indeed for joining us on the programme. Thanks a million, Michael. Thank you. Pam Bergen is uh, the Executive uh, Director of the Gambling Awareness Trust. That's our programme for today and uh, this week. God willing, you'll join us for our next programme on Tuesday morning at 9am right here on LMFM. Good morning, bye-bye. The Michael Reed Show podcast. Tune in weekdays from 9 on LMFM. To contact us, email now. Michael at lmfm.ie. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply.